It's my pleasure to welcome Sam Pascoe back to the pulpit of Christ the King. I've introduced, he's been here before, so I'll keep my introduction brief, but I've known Sam going on 40 years as Sam was the rector of my church uh, growing up. So Sam, thank you for being here. Thank you, David. What an honor to be back with you. Um, David turned out quite well. Uh, but we're not shocked. We're not shocked. Um, I did not realize a couple things uh, when David asked me to come and be with you again, which is a real honor. I just, I just love this church. Um, I didn't know he was going to ask me to preach on the passage that he asked me to preach on today, which is one of my least favorite passages in Scripture, and I'll explain why in a minute. But I also didn't know that there was going to be a presentation about Young Life at T.C. Williams, which is very close to my heart because I met my wife in Young Life at T.C. Williams. Maybe. We're not sure. <laughs> and the reason we're not sure is because she was a student at TC at the time, and I was a Young Life leader at the time, and we did a retreat at Virginia Beach. We took three, four, five hundred high school kids down to Virginia Beach, um, and my wife was on the bus from TC Williams that went to the Virginia Beach Hilton in 1972, I think it was. Might have been 71. Do you remember what year it was? 71, okay. And all of the kids from TC got off and turned to the right toward the meeting room. My wife, whose boyfriend lived in Virginia Beach, turned to the left. And I was one of the leaders that spent the rest of the weekend trying to find the missing kids from TC Williams. Um, and so we may have met in 1971. <laughs> Uh, my wife is here today. She's right there. Um, so I, I owe a great debt to Young Life at T.C. Williams, I think. Uh, my wife's other claim to fame is that if you've ever seen the movie Remember the Titans, my wife dated Sunshine. Uh, that was her boyfriend in high school. And when we watched the movie in the theater, at the end of the movie, my son looked over at my wife and said, you mean he could have been our dad? <laughs> true story, honest to gosh, true story. Um, I have a major announcement to make. I was listening to the radio on the way in this morning and I have a major announcement to make. I am not running for president. <laughs> I just wanted you to know that I'm one of the few people you know that isn't running for president. Um, First of all, I just want to make a quick note about Psalm 90, that, that wonderful psalm that we read an hour ago. Uh, and the, the, the modern translation just can't touch the King James. You know, when it says on verse 10 that we might live 70 or by strength 80, you know, the, the old King James was three score years and 10, and if by strength, four score. You know, that is so much more lyric than 70 and 80. And then at the very end, that wonderful little line about I'll fly away. Um, two, two weekends ago, my wife and I buried uh, our sister, her sister-in-law, my sister-in-law, um, and one of the things that she had insisted on, she had a long heroic fight against cancer, and she lost it two weeks ago, and one of the things that she insisted in her memorial service was that we sing I'll fly away, that wonderful old spiritual, and so um, whenever I see that line, I just, I think of I'll fly away, and uh, it's just very touching. Uh, this passage from Matthew 25, as I said, is one of my least favorite passages in Scripture. 
and I, it, it makes me wonder, as you read it, if Jesus was just in a bad mood uh, or, you know, because it, it's just kind of this nasty, you know, uh, hey, I, I gave you this money and some of you did good and so that's good, but this guy over here, he messed up and so take what little he has away from him, give it to somebody else, and we're going to toss you out where there's wailing and ganashing of teeth. And it just kind of, dang, you know, it's like, calm down, Jesus, you know. Uh, also, the story just kind of drags on and on and on. It's like we get the point, okay? You, you, you kind of made the point. The guy gave God five, the guy gave that, and then, but it's just retelling and retelling and retelling the story. So it must have been important to Jesus. It was obviously important to Matthew because he was a money guy. I mean, you know, Matthew was a tax collector, and he was thinking oh, 5% of this. He was doing the math in his head as he listened to this story. But I just want to say that if, if this was all we had to go by, if this little pericope, this story, was all we had to go by to understand the nature of God, we would come away with a very distorted view of who God is. God would come across as, as a taker, not a giver, as, as distant and demanding and greedy and cruel, and not even a good Jew. Can you imagine God not even being a good Jew? Because in Deuteronomy it says, Deuteronomy 23, you shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, etc., Charging interest was against the Jewish law. And here this guy is saying, at the very minimum, you should have gotten some interest. And so this passage creates enormous problems for me. Uh, and I, and I, it's like having, you ever opened up a box of something with lots of parts in it and then decided you wanted to return it and tried to get the parts back in the box and they just, there's, they just never fit, you know? We know that this passage is in Scripture because it tells us something about the nature of God, but it just doesn't quite fit with the rest of the Scripture. Because we know from the rest of Scripture that God is not demanding, distant, cruel, um, greedy, etc. So what do we do with this? Well, I'm, I'm sure that David and Robbie have introduced you to the concept of hermeneutics, which is... You've, you've, if you're of a certain age, you've, you've heard of Herman Munster and uh, uh, Herman and the Hermits, uh, Herman Hesse, if you're of a certain age, and Siddhartha and Steppenwolf and all that. Well, hermeneutics is the art, science, or whatever, of interpreting a text. And biblical hermeneutics has got certain principles. Um, one is you, imp you interpret the implicit in light of the explicit. In other words, you, you take what you don't quite understand and you, you bring light from what you do understand about the Scripture. Another is that you have to know the context, both historic and contextual. Where is this in the, in the larger story and where is it in the history of God's people? You try to get as close to the original language as possible. You try to get back to the Greek and if so, and even beyond that, back to the Aramaic that Jesus was speaking that narrative is not normative. In other words, just because something happened one time one way doesn't mean that that's the way it always is supposed to happen. Narrative is not normative. You interpret according to the genre. In other words, you interpret poetry different than you interpret prose. 
You interpret history differently than you interpret prophecy. And so you have to determine what kind of literature you're looking at. And finally, you are not allowed to interpret one passage of Scripture so that it's in conflict with the rest. That's called the rule of faith, and it goes back to the second or third century. And uh, it's even enshrined in the Anglican formulary called the uh, Articles of Religion. Article 20 in the Articles of Religion says, The church has power to decree rites or ceremonies and authority and controversies of faith, and yet it is not lawful for the church to ordain anything contrary to God's word written, neither may it so expound one place of Scripture that it be repugnant to another. In other words, the church can interpret what the Scripture says. It's up to the body of Christ to look at that and say, well, what does this mean? But you can't do it in such a way that it's in conflict with another part. It's a whole. It fits back in the box somehow. And so it's our job to understand that. The first question we need to ask about this passage is, is it descriptive or prescriptive? In other words, is it basically saying, this is the way the world works. If you got a lot, you're going to get more. If you don't have much, you're not going to get much. Is that descriptive? In other words, is that the way things are? And to an extent, yeah, it's a, it's a tough world out there. The rich get richer, the poor get poorer, you know. In many ways, that's a true truth. But is it also prescriptive? In other words, is it trying to tell us something about the way the world ought to be? That old philosophical question, can you get an ought from an is? Is, is just because something the way it is, is that the way it ought to be? And this is a passage that definitely describes the real world that a lot of us live in. Many of us have cruel greedy, distant, demanding bosses. Many of us have got, you know, are in situations where we see people around us with unfair advantages um, or even more ability, doing better than we are. The word talent in this passage uh, is often correctly misinterpreted, if I can say it that way. Um, our, word, our English word talent is the same as the Greek word here for talent. And we use the word talent to describe people like Anne and, and uh, the, the young man who played the violin and the choristers from T.C. Williams, people who have natural abilities at things, and they hone those abilities. And that is a correct misinterpretation of the word. The, the original meaning of the word talent was a weight. It, it meant a volume of something. The, and it was equivalent to about 73 pounds in, you know, modern world, or 33 kilograms if you're metric, which I'm not. But um, in other words, it referred to the substance of something. And so when the writer uh, talks about somebody being given talents of something, it's very easy if you're a preacher to say, well, that's talking about your natural gifting, and you're supposed to give your gifts to God and let him multiply your gifts. And that'll preach. I mean, that's good. That's you, I can make a sermon out of that. I probably have over the years. David's probably heard them, you know. And that's true to a point. I mean, that's a valid misinterpretation. But it's actually a, a reference to the weight of gold that these servants were given. And it's an unbelievable amount. Like I said, 73 pounds. In today's dollars, that would be, one talent would be about $1.4 million dollars. So it's not like the guy who only got one talent didn't get much. He got $1.4 million. 
The guy who got five talents got about $7 million in, Amer you know, in 21st century American money. This was a huge, a huge gift, a huge responsibility. It's not like the master sort of said, well, here, take a little bit. He gave them enormous opportunity and enormous responsibility, even to the least of those. And so the naive interpretation as you read that passage is, one, our master is very rich and very demanding. Okay? Number two, it's his stuff. He says, I'm giving you, I'm loaning you my stuff. This is my stuff, not your stuff. I'm not giving it to you. So it's on loan, and I want you to do something with it. That's truth number two. Truth number three, the master entrusts us with abundance. And everybody sitting in this room, every single person in this room has been given abundance. Now, there are people in this room that have more than others, but I promise you, if you live within a 10-mile radius of this room, you are in the top 2% of the world's population in terms of resources. You just can't live here without being some of the richest people that have ever lived on the planet. Even if you consider yourself relatively lower middle class or even upper lower class or whatever, you still have got so much more in terms of resources than the vast majority of the people who ever lived. You have access to incredible medical care. You have access to incredible communications resources and knowledge, et cetera, et cetera. We are those to whom much has been given. Number four, our master wants us to work to earn his approval or we'll get punished. That's sort of that tension there. There's, there's kind of like two options. Either you are welcomed into the joy of your master or you are thrown out where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth, okay? You either are a winner or a loser. You're a peacock or a feather duster. You're a hero, you're a zero. I mean, you, those are sort of the, that's sort of, if you just read this, it's like, okay, there's only two possible outcomes. Either I get to go to a party or I get kicked out. Another truth that is, that you, you might naively think is in this passage is, therefore, you have to get to work and hope for the best. That's the message. Because God is like Santa. He's, you better watch out. You know, you better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Because he's coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good so you get some stuff, right? And that's the image that, that, of the master that comes across. And Is that what we're supposed to take away from this? Is that the image of God that we're supposed to have? The master uses three different words to describe the, the servant in this passage. Wicked, I mean the, the, the one servant that, that didn't measure up. The others are good and faithful, and we all want to hear that. Wait, you, know, you did good, and you were faithful. But the poor guy who was who buried the, the, the treasure, the talent, was wicked, slothful, and worthless. His own interpretation of his behavior was, I was afraid. He said that. I was afraid. I was scared. His mentality was scarcity versus abundance. I've got to hold on to what I got. I've, I've got to guard it because... 
it's a tough world out there. And if I, if I take a risk and I lose, I'm going to be in big trouble. And so he was operating from a mentality of scarcity versus abundance. The master's affections were very hard to come by. They were not abundant. They were not extravagant or overflowing. And that produced a fear-based understanding of who God was. Now, that risk aversion is, comes very naturally to we Anglicans, okay? We Anglicans are really bad at risk, okay? We, I mean, look at this stuff, you know, we've got, I mean, we wear 18th century clothing, all right? You know, we sing a lot of old, I mean, Anne does a great job of mixing old music with, but, you know, if you walk into most Anglican churches, it's like the seven last words of the church. We've never done it that way before, right? You know, it's like, oh, Gee whiz, you know, uh, you know, if if David should leave a cup of water somewhere in two weeks, you know, they're going to put flowers around it and have a plaque underneath it, and you know, it's it's like we worship tradition. We we don't like change, and so this whole concept of of taking risks is very hard for us. That's the reason we're here. We like traditional stuff. And yet, God seems to sort of push us in that direction. That's one of the things I love about young life, is that it lives on the edge. There's, they're always sort of asking the question, okay, how can God use this? Is this going to work? Let's try this. We used to joke. I, was on, I worked with young life for 10 years. So um, we always used to joke that we'd know our angels when we got to heaven because their wings would be all beat up from, you know, uh, trying to pull us out of things. And I look back at some of the stuff that we did, and it's like, oh, my gosh. And we try to do that now. But risk was a natural part. Taking a chance, seeing, hey, perhaps God will use us. There's this wonderful passage where Jonathan is taking his armor bearer over to the Philistines, and he, he even says that. He says, let's go over there. Perhaps God will use us. It's like, let's give it a shot. <laughs> you know, worst that'll happen is we'll get killed. Okay. <laughs> and so this, this poor servant, he was scared to death. His image of God was not of a loving father who says, hey, go for it. I'm here to catch you. And if you mess up, come home and I'll put my arms around you and we'll kill the fatted calf and I'll put the robe around you and I'll love you. But don't waste your life burying your gifts. They did a survey once, they've done a lot of surveys, of, of folks in retirement homes, old folks, and they said, what is your one regret in life? And the, the vast majority said, my biggest regret in life is that I didn't take enough risks. Looking back on my life, I wish I had taken more risks. And I think that's true as I reach that point in my own life. I look back and I think, I don't regret nearly as much the things I did as the things I didn't do, the things I didn't try to do, the risks I didn't take. Because I really didn't believe in the goodness of God. I really didn't believe in the helmet of salvation. The helmet is the thing that enables you to stick your neck out, right? And God says, I got you. You're covered. You can't make a mistake so big that I won't catch you, that I won't love you, that I won't embrace you. Now, does fear make us wicked, slothful, slothful? Does fear make us wicked, slothful, and worthless? 
No. But it can sure make us feel that way. If we operate out of fear, then we're going to feel slothful. We're going to feel wicked. We're going to feel worthless. And it all comes from a misunderstanding of who God is. And so there are two truths here. Truth number one is built on, actually truth number two is built on truth number one. But truth number one is like a foundation of a house. It's, it's invisible but very important. And found, foundational truth number one is that God is not like the distant, demanding, cruel, greedy owner who says, you better produce or I'm going to kick you out where there's wailing and ganashing of teeth. That's why we have to look at all of Scripture. And the picture of Scripture that gives us of God is of a loving father who's hesed in Hebrew, agape in Greek. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave. He doesn't, he's not a taker, he's a giver. The prodigal who is messed up big time and yet is welcomed back by the Father. That's the foundational truth of our lives. And when we actually embrace that and believe it and, and, and make that part of our DNA, then we are able to take risks. We are able to go out there and take the wonderful things that God has given us and invest them in ways that can produce, you know, fivefold, tenfold, hundredfold, because we have the good seed, as Jesus said. So the first truth is the foundational truth of God's unfailing, eternal love that each and every one of us here can claim and be assured of based on the cross of Christ. The second truth, and it is true, is that God does hold us accountable for what we do with the gifts he's given us. There will be a day when we will have to stand before the Lord and say, this is what I did. Now, I don't think it's going to be <laughs> wicked, lazy, slothful servant. I think God, you know, I think God's going to say, I'm so, I'm, you know, for those of us who didn't take some risks, he'll be sad with us. He'll be sad with us. But he'll say, you know, it's okay. It's okay. Welcome thou into the joy of your master. Because that is what awaits all of us. Our master has enormous resources. Unbelievable, with cattle on a thousand hills. And he entrusts some of those resources to each of us. Every single person in this room in the expectation that we will invest them so that his kingdom might increase. He expects us to err on the side of risk, which, as I said, is hard for us Anglicans. We like to err on the side of caution. But God says, no, err on the side of risk. If you come to a conundrum, do I go right or left? Do I play it safe or do I take a risk? He's saying, take a risk. I got you. Take a risk. Even though that can be scary, and it is scary. We used to say, what have you done this week that you couldn't have done if God were not alive? What have you done this week that you literally could not have done if God were not alive in your life? And if the answer is, I can't think of a thing, then you're really not living a life of faith. You're just kind of going along with the flow. But we are not to live in fear like that poor servant. 
Because unlike the cruel and distant master in the story, our master is a loving father. And there is nothing that you can do that can shake you loose from his abiding love. Just reflect on that for a minute before we sing our final hymn.